session. Podcast Artists. The production of this podcast was made possible by the kind support of the Dorotheum. My name is Oliver Ressler. I'm an artist and filmmaker based in Vienna. I'm also a member of the Vienna Secession Art Association. I have the pleasure to talk to Kocho Eshun from the Autodid Group. And we're meeting here in Vienna on the occasion of the Autolitz Group solo exhibition, What the Owl Knows, which is also the title of the new film that was co-commissioned by Secession. Welcome and good to see you and talk to you. Hi, Oliver. It's a pleasure to be back in Vienna after maybe a decade or so. Mm. It's great to be back. I know your work and have been following it for many years, and I'm happy to also finally see it here in Vienna, the city I'm living. And interestingly enough, uh, while at least to my knowledge, you have never had a solo exhibition in Austria, this solo show at Secession is already your second solo show in Austria this year. Uh, the earlier one, uh, curated by Ivana Majanovic, has opened at Kunstraum Innsbruck a few weeks ago and is still ongoing. So it's quite nice to have this presence finally in, in Austria, this deserved present. So let's talk about your film, What the Owl Knows. When I watched the film, I didn't have any information prior to what it is about. There was no text. So I just started to see a film and it was kind of interesting for how long the film actually keeps it completely open, what it is about. At the beginning, you observe a black woman painting. You see primarily details. So at the very beginning, you not even know exactly that this is a person painting. You only rarely see the entire painting she's working on, at least in the beginning. You primarily see details and without any additional information. And this is also the way how I think the majority of the people will see your exhibition as the majority of people come here in order to see the Klimt freeze and as they have to pay the entrance for the entire building, they will also see the contemporary art exhibition. So the majority of audience will never heard about the Autolit group and is also primarily interested in, in Gustav Klimt. So I'm kind of curious to uh, know how people will perceive this work without additional information. If they enter the space just at the moment when you start, when the film starts, then it might appear like a documentation of a painter's work. What are your thoughts about that? And talk uh, to me about the decision to start a film like this, please. I think we have a, we have a love-hate relationship with documentary and with documentation. So um, what the owl knows is we call it a study of study. So I think if you if you're not paying full attention, it might seem to you like it's a portrait or a documentary of a, a painter um, who's a good friend of ours, a painter called Lynette Yadon-Boachi. 
a London painter, you know, for us, one of the most important contemporary painters in the UK. And um, it might seem like a documentary, but if you start paying attention, you realise that um, there's a continuous movement between two paintings, even a third unfinished painting, and you realise there's no real chronology. And so you realise it's a study of a process. And then even more, it's really about how video pays attention to how a painter pays attention to paint. So it's really a kind of um, reflexive study of how one medium creates a kind of relationship with another medium. And so after a while, it becomes clear that what the video is doing, it's actually decomposing the composition process. So Lynette is composing her paintings, but we're using video to abstract the kinds of work that she is doing so that it becomes about a study of the marks that Lynette is making and a study of the decisions that she makes. And there is a shift that the video is trying to engineer away from the painting as the object of attention to how the painter pays attention. And that's really what we want to draw attention to and stay with. And, you know, in several of our works, there is this effort to use video to stage a performance of another art. So in our work on Julius Eastman, the third part of the third measure, there's a performance of a Julius Eastman composition, which looks like a documentation of a performance, but actually it's it's composed from 18 different camera takes and one sonic take. So it's a kind of it's a kind of video composition of a performance. And there's an earlier work on the poet Atel Adnan where she reads her poem. And you might think that's a documentation, but actually we've totally re-edited her poem according to the choices of video footage that we have. So in each case, there is this effort to recompose a perf musical performance or a poem or a painting according to our camera decisions and according to our editing choices. So what you have is something like a painting for video, something like a video painting, which only exists as video, which is very different from going to see Lynette's work. And it's also very different from the traditional approach to painters where there is an effort to, to approach the painter in terms of psychological motivation or psychological intention, you know, to ask the question, why do you paint in the way you do? Or there's an effort to work out a biographical motivation. You paint the way you do because you were born here and you grew up here and you did this and you went to school here. And so you can see that there's an effort to displace the biographical drive and to displace the psychological drive and to replace that with this recursive perspective and to replace it also with the question of 
poetry. So when people enter the space, the visitors who've come to see Klimt, and they see this work that they don't have any coordinates for, that they don't have any preparation for, this is exactly what we want. We want people to not know what they are seeing because this not knowing, um, this méconnaissance, this state of spectatorship without an object could engender a recursive question of what is it we're doing when we watch a video of a painter and what are the expectations that we bring to watching? What do we assume a video of a painter should provide? What do we want from a video that studies a painter? So this question should provide this, this kind of void where biography usually is, or where psychology is, should be the occasion for some recursive questions. That's the idea. Who knows how it's actually going to play out. But that's okay, because we want to introduce some contingency into spectatorship. Who knows what might happen. And I assume in an attempt to find out what it is about, I think most people will try to listen carefully also to the text, these poems. And as soon as uh, Yada Boashi leaves the studio more or less in the dark from the off, we also hear some of the, of the poems. And I have the impression that there are more or less two categories. One leaves us in a quiet, in a position where you have a lot of space of, to interpret what you see. So it opens up a space of imagination. These are quite oblique texts. And the others, I think, are quite concrete, e.g. these parts on the money of not having it and that the heaven is upstairs and the hell is downstairs. So this is that's much easier to relate to. So there is this uh, balance, I think, between the concrete and the more abstract texts. Maybe you could talk a bit about that. Those are really good observations, I think. Yes, the idea is that where biography is or where psychology is, or where there's interpretation, instead you have um, you have poetics. So you have poetic language, which um, doesn't explain, but it dramatizes and it heightens certain um, a certain inquiry and a certain drama of not knowing. So yes, um, there are there are certain poems which have um, we call them nighttime thoughts. Nighttime thoughts of, um, they're almost Miltonian in the sense of John Milton's Paradise Lost. They're quite epic and they use a lot of archaic English language like Stygian or Obsidian. These words which are not usually used in everyday language, they're quite refined words. And then yes, there are. there's another set of poems which are much more to do with They're a kind of dramatization of an interview. And so all of the poems are written by Lynette, Lynette Yadon Boachi. So she's both a painter and a poet. 
And she writes that her poems do what her paintings can't do, and her paintings do what her poems can't. So what we've done is use video to arrange a kind of conversation between painting and poetry, and even more to arrange a kind of conversation between day and night, between nighttime thoughts and daytime thoughts, between. A certain poetic language of a poetic language which has its own power to auto institute an imagined world, and painting, which is extremely an extremely materialist practice, quite chemical, quite industrial, but also there are moments in painting which are quite they're just about the net. Moving back from the canvas and studying it, there's this Japanese concept of ma, which means the space between us, like the space between us now, Oliver, right now. That is ma, and so there are all these moments where Lynette steps back from the canvas and she's kind of measuring it. You can see her kind of weighing up the blocks of color here, as if the canvas has a gravity and she's trying to keep all the Different weights of the canvas in a certain state. So you have all these movements between these kind of mental and material labor, between poetic evocation and poetic concreteness, between nighttime thoughts moving through the parks and the sodium lights of London, and then these scenes in the studio where you can only use the same light that Lynette uses. You can't bring in a bunch of camera lights, and you can't even change the studio. It's the other way around. You have to fit into the studio that Lynette has, which she's never let anybody film in. She's been there for many years over in East London, but she's never let anybody ever film because it's her world. It's her space. She works there, and we're just visitors. So a lot of the camera angles are dictated by having to fit around her world. The inspiration is when、um, Straub and Willey film the Chronicle of Anna Magdalena Bach, and you have Gustav Leinhardt playing harpsichord or clavichord or whatever it is. Straub and Willey bring their camera into a house which is not built for cinematography, so you get these extremely awkward shots because it's 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 a、uh, It's Bach's house, and there's no cinema in when Bach was alive. So it's the house is forcing these camera frames on the cinematography, not the other way around. And the studio is like that as well. So in a way, the studio is is kind of setting the the parameters for what the camera can do. In that sense, the studio is directing what we can do because it sets some conditions. We can't do what most Camera people do, which would be like, oh, can you move this and can you move that and can we put the lights here and can we have this here? It's like, no, 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 don't do anything. Don't act like some occupying force, which is what most camera people do. They take over. It's what most cinema crews do. Even video does that, but ours is the opposite. It's an attempt to be sensitive to the、um, to the initial conditions, and that's because we're friends. The old video comes out of friendship. We're friends for many years, but we're friends 
across art forms. So in a way, this is our effort to um, to record a friendship um, and to to transpose that friendship into artistic terms. Um, so Lynette famously does not paint portraits. All her figures are imaginary. She She's not like um, Lucien Freud or something where he's got some model and they're posing for hours. No, these are all imagined from different fragments of magazines that she has. And just as Lynette doesn't believe in portraiture, we don't believe in portraits either. So it's not a portrait of Lynette making a portrait. It's kind of the opposite of that. But if you're not paying attention, you might think it's the opposite. So it's a bit of a trap that we're setting for the viewer, really. In a way, the viewer can be caught by their own expectations. And if they do, then they become they become the engineer of their own their own fate. Like they set a trap for themselves, which they then walk into, which is what happens in the in the middle of the video where there's this animation. Hmm. And that it's not uh, a portrait uh, is also underlined by the fact and the, an aspect that. Uh, Uh, comes in addition to what we were talking about now already. This is this animated part with the birds where the uh, conversation continues, but now it's animated animals that uh, take over the position of the speakers, which I found quite amazing. And uh, it, it for me, it really created kind of... Uh, a distinction also to what I saw before. So how would you say, is this separate and connected to, to the other part? And what's the reason for it? Well, again, the uh, animation between, um, it's a conversation between a pigeon and an owl. Well, the owl doesn't say very much. The owl hardly speaks, the pigeon speaks all the time. But again, it's inspired by Lynette's writing. So she wrote this um, fable of this conversation and she writes a lot of fables in which like in, like say a crow and a fox look at humans in a house behaving badly or uh, a crow and a raven argue with each other so she often has these fables in which birds or animals have a distance on human behavior and can observe humans behaving with a certain cruelty and a certain malevolence towards each other. And animals and birds themselves behave cruelly because they're not humans, because they're beyond good and evil. So a bird is a, is a, is a device for making a kind of commentary. So in this case, you have an owl being attacked by a pigeon for its elitism. The pigeon believes that the owl acts in a superior way and the pigeon wants to bring the owl down to earth and say, you're a bird like the rest of us. You're no better or worse than any other bird. You're just a bird like I am. And the owl just ignores the pigeon because, of course, the owl is really concentrating on one thing, which is uh, flying down and catching this field mouse in order to catch it and eat it. 
That's really all the owl is concerned about. And of course, the owl's a predator, so it's very good at that. So the pigeon is attacking the owl, trying to get the attention of the owl. The owl is just ignoring the pigeon, who just gets angrier and angrier. And finally, the owl swoops down to catch the field mouse and then on the way down hits the pigeon and kills the pigeon who falls to the ground dead and the field mouse gets away and then the owl flies off to catch some more creatures and dreams of other creatures like a mole or a um, other creatures that it would like to eat and so here the pigeon is really the um, the pigeon has engineered its own death by getting in the way of the owl and by not realising that the owl is a predator who really only has one objective. And this image of a pigeon as the engineer of its own death is, of course, an allegory of British politics. That's the, that is a, that is a good summary of British politics since 2016. That's a state in which the British state, as led by the Tory regime, has engineered its own disaster, its own series of disasters, one after another. So that's part of what's going on there. It's a political allegory, and it's an artistic allegory as well. The pigeon stands for a certain kind of artist, and the owl stands for a certain kind of artist. The owl stands for Lynette. The artist who has, who has her eyes on a certain prize, which is painting. And other artists are saying, who do you think you are? You think you're special. You think you're a painter. Lynette's just working, i.e. like the owl, it's just hunting. But other, our other painters, i.e. the pigeon, is trying to bring this artist down to size, trying to cut her down and say, you think you're special with your painting. Who do you think you are? You're just another painter. Where did you get such ambitions and aspirations to be special? So it, it's an allegory of being a painter. It's an allegory of the, you know, the artist as a young woman. And it's also an allegory of British politics. But it's all couched, in, of course, in an oblique language of the fable, like a sinister children's fable. So you might not, you might not grasp any of this, but it's there. There are also more animals in the film. So we see a fox walking in between the cars, crossing a street. Also, there's a painting by Lynette with a fox underneath a chair of a black man sitting on the same chair. Lots of references. Was this a coincidence that the uh, fox was just in front of your camera and you decided to include it? We were we were on the lookout for nighttime creatures. If you go out at a, at a certain time, you know, quite late in London, and you keep your eye out, chances are you'll find a fox. So we were looking for it, but of course we were lucky that a fox played its correct role. And that's because if you set up certain conditions, reality produces its own special effects. I'm sure you know this in your own work. If you set up some preconditions and you, you limit them, reality generates things inside of the constraints. 
So, yeah, so we hoped it would happen and it did. And yes, because the fox has this, these qualities, you know, it's cunning, it's a scavenger, it's a predator, it lives by night. It lives in some kind of parallel world to ours. My, my sense is that the entire film is in a way timeless. Uh, it merges elements from the past, uh, from the present and the future. And how things are discussed and addressed and shown, it will also have meaning in 10 years. So it also relates, I think, well to the timelessness I see in Lynette's paintings. But in contrast to this, at the very end of the film, it's getting very concrete. So the audio footage you decided to include situates the film in a very specific historical moment in 2022. In the UK, we hear radio excerpts of Boris Johnson stepping down as prime minister and Liz Trust being announced as incoming new prime minister. We get this through original radio material, so there is quite an intensity of how these things are being brought to us. So I think at the very end, you could you maybe also open it up to this interpretation you gave me already before, now do the owl and the pigeon. Can you talk about, about this? Sure, yeah. I think you're right. In the first case, we could say that one way to think of Lynette's project and one way to think of our project as well is that um, the, uh, the history of the Afro-diasporic figure, the history of the black subject in painting is over-determined by the history of painting itself. So that the, the figuration, black figuration bears an incredible weight as soon as it appears in the frame. You can see that in the US where you have figures like Kehinde Wiley and Amy Sherald who are effectively state painters, you know, commissioned by the Obamas to create portraits of Michelle and Barack Obama. The demand for painting to produce state portrait for the nation. The US has that. The UK doesn't have it to the same degree. It shows you the kind of duties that painting is expected to perform in the US. In the UK, I think many people would like painting to perform those duties. But I think the black figure bears that huge overdetermination. And so I think part of Lynette's timelessness, which many people talk about and which you referred to, her effort is to suspend that and to underdetermine the figure so that you can't tell where they are from or what time they live in or how old they are. And that's a deliberate underdetermination of black figuration in order to restore a contingency to black figuration, to re restore an unknown dimension, a dimension of the unthought, to lift over determination and to suspend it, not to destroy it, but to suspend it and to displace it. That's Lynette's project, and that's one we admire very much, the effort to suspend that and to create contingency and the unthought in its place so that you don't know what to think of the figures that you are looking at because you don't know what they are thinking 
because you can't read their intentions from the canvas. So Lynette restores a certain obliqueness and opacity and a certain distance, even at an intimacy, but also a distance, an intimate distance between the canvas and yourself. And that's her project. And in the video, you realise the concentration that is required to do that work, to do that work of suspending and lifting this uh, over-determination. You realise uh, she's sitting there with her Bluetooth earbuds and she's just painting, 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 ignoring the outside world. But we are watching her and the outside world is happening anyway. So at the end of the video, it's as if... Um, Everything that Lynette excludes in order to do her work comes crashing back into the video at the end. And so the audio montage that you hear exists exactly during the time of production. So while we're making this work, while we're, we're creating the storyboards and talking to the director of photography and talking to our editor... All of this is happening around us. So it's it's a kind of timeline of the production process. And it comes crashing back in with this specific soundtrack by a new jazz composer called Pat Thomas. So he's doing these tone clusters, these very attacking piano clusters, which are fighting with the audio. So you get this sense of these multiple crises, the crises of the British state in the state of political decay, the crisis of a certain kind of neoliberal capitalism entering a point of extreme legitimation crisis. That's what's happening at the same time as Lynette is doing her work and we are doing our work. And the key is how would you, how do you evoke this? You could have you know, footage of people going on strike, footage of people marching. But um, we were very influenced by Greg Tate, the great writer who died recently. And Greg Tate is talking about a Miles Davis composition called Riot from the mid-60s. So it's in the 60s and America is in flames. And Miles Davis is in this basement with Herbie Hancock and Ron Carter Wayne Shorter, all these musicians. And, you know, Miles Davis is not up up with the rioters making recordings of the rioters saying, let's, let's use audio of the rioters. Miles Davis is in the basement handing out sheet music, going, let's make this work, shall we? And we'll call it Riot. But it's not... It's not a one-to-one relation to a real riot up there. We all know what's going on in the streets, but down here we're doing our work. And that's part of it. It's like if you're a painter, and if you're a painter, if you're a black woman painter, then the work is to intervene in painting. The work is not to go upstairs and make a painting of a riot. The work is to intervene in the overdetermination of painting. And... Uh, and that's, you know, the whole project is to transpose part of Lynette's project and to ask what happens when you transpose it into video. 
So we're inspired by that effort. What happens? Can we intervene in video using ideas that we've learned from painting? It's what we call、um, hearing across media.、Uh, we're very inspired by this brilliant、um, literary theorist in the states called Brent Hayes Edwards, who wrote a brilliant book called Epistrophes, which is about how jazz musicians write about music. And he has this question. He has this. This. He says jazz musicians hear across media. So when whatever they write about, they write about it as if they're listening to it. And so this is our attempt to use painting to to frame video and to use Lynette's project of underdetermination. And to transpose under determination to a video practice, and to see what happens when we do that. So that's part of what's going on in those moments. And because we, because we want to see the destruction of the Tory Party, and because we believe in the abolition of the monarchy, these moments are very exciting for us. And they they hold with them a great charge, so we always knew we would do this credit sequence. So while we were shooting and doing all our work, we were continually recording everything, like days and days and days of recordings. And so, of course, what you hear is just tiny sequences, but yeah, we have days of recordings of the. The resignation, and then trust, and then the budget, and of course now it's a time capsule. You know, between September and where we are in November, things have only accelerated. So now, when we look back, when you listen back, you can hear a time capsule of what it was like between July and September of twenty twenty two, which was only two months ago, but it feels much longer because. In a state of, you know, in a state of capitalist decay, a certain political acceleration and a certain political、um, turbulence takes hold. Yeah, that's what you hear. I think、uh, that your work, and this is also in contrast to my own、uh, film work, is done in a specific way that makes it complicated to summarize it. Or to convey a specific message, it's very open towards different possibilities of interpretation. And I mean, you mentioned now the crisis of British capitalism, which is quite present, of course,、uh, throughout the entire film. Would you say that this could be a specific message、uh, the film tries to convey, or would you regard more the film as a specific structure to avoid? An approach to find one or two specific messages through the format of the film. I think the video tries to evoke what Raymond Williams called a structure of feeling, and that has to do with questions of attention and concentration and duration. And it's to say, you know, if you're you're a contemporary artist. The kind of concentration required to do the work requires making st certain strategic choices, 
you know, it might seem that the best way to make a political work is to be out in the streets. But sometimes the strategic choice is to stay in the basement and do your work. Sometimes. It all depends. <clears throat> in, and, and in a way, we're asking, what are the strategic choices that an artist should make at this point in time when, when politics in the UK is so so serious and so urgent like in many cities and many countries but um when you say compare to yourself do you mean in your work you you like to reduce the openness in order to make the messages more apparent and more articulated hmm. Is that what is that what you mean? Just so I understand your the distinction you make you're making. Yes. So I, I think that the way how I do films is also a way that I try to find a possibility to make it accessible for people who are not pre informed about different situations and who might know nothing about art. And for me it's also important that the films can be used in different contexts, for example, in social movements or political organizations. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of it goes back to um, when I was, um, you know, very young, watching films, always by myself, in um, places like uh, the Scala Cinema, in King's Cross or um, the Everyman Cinema in Hampstead. And the films that stayed with me were the ones I didn't fully understand because I was maybe too young. Like if you're 16 and you watch, I don't know, Last Tango in Paris, it's quite difficult to understand depression and impotence and despair and jealousy and these adult emotions. It's quite difficult to understand those. But yet I kept thinking about this film, not because I liked it, but because I didn't understand it. Um, oh, Parajan of the Colour of Pomegranates, this incredible frontality. So there were these um, screen memories that stay with you, of this gap between what you see and what you understand about what you see, and then what you know about what you understand, about what you see. And this these uh, discrepancies between seeing, knowing, and understanding. I think this is a kind of structure that all our work tries to inhabit. And I think um, what you're describing in your work compared to our work is, um, is a, a different temple structures of experience. I think they are different ways of building communities of spectatorship because these structures of watching, understanding and knowing, this is also the, the, a diagram for a certain kind of spectatorship, you know. The idea is that if this structure holds my attention, maybe it holds other people's, not just me. The structure is not, it's not an individual structure in my head. It's a structure of spectatorship, which can be transposed and can invite other people into it. So it's a different 
politics of time. Um, so I have the greatest respect for the artists whose work plays that um, role of social condensation, the, the, the moving image as a social condenser. We were both friends and we both liked the work of Haroon Faraki, for example. And Froggy was brilliant at doing that, you know. So I admire things I can't do, precisely because I can't do them. But in a way, you know, without, at a certain point, you find yourself making these works. And then you build a language for why you make them and what you're doing. This is the first time I've spoken about this work. Because it's new, it's not even, it's not even up yet. We're in that final stage of it going public, so it's always um, it's always a delicate moment because you think, without realizing it, you realize that um, ah, oh, the structure, there is this pattern that repeats in these very different works. I can see this pattern across the years, so um. I know people will be surprised by this video. They'll be like, oh, you're making this video about a painter. I didn't see it coming. That's a good, it's good to surprise people. People saw the last work, Infinity Minus Infinity, which is this epic work about the hostile environment and about the compensated emancipation of uh, the 18th century where the British abolished slavery and paid slaveholders 20 million pounds which is now several billion so this this was a large kind of cosmopolitical drama about the hostile environment about the racial capitalist scene about enslavement and abolition and then to this people be like oh where did that come from but the the links between the works they are visible to us but visitors should be surprised and they should be they should be um you know they shouldn't quite know what to make of what it is they're seeing that art is a good place maybe one of the places where you can be you can do a double take and go what is this i'm seeing what am i doing when i'm watching it Art's a good place to do that. Maybe it's one of the, maybe there are not that many places where you can, you can engineer that kind of spectatorial uncertainty that's a certain kind of dissonance and invite people to stay in it. Like, it's okay. You won't, you won't, it's not harmful. It's not, it's not threatening at that level of, it's not a physical threat. It's not an emotional threat. It's a kind of um, testing of frames and frameworks. It's a different kind of threat. It's not, you know, it's not a threat to your livelihood or your well-being. It's just an invitation to test some expectations that you bring with you. And that's and that's something. Um, I think that is that is a politics. It's just working on a different timeline and a different time frame to the politics that you've elaborated. But a left, left movements 
and we consider ourselves part of the left in the UK, you need all these strategies. You need all these tactics. We need both of your tactics and ours and many others. Um, the more, the better, actually. Yeah, I totally agree. And I also <clears throat> think it's very important to undermine existing expectations and use this uh, also in order to make people thinking more maybe and in investing in uh, finding out about work. And the Autolit group has been around for 20 years, right? And you, you have done films, sound works, performances, objects, installations, text, texts, you curated shows. So how would you describe this journey? What's the next steps? What might we expect from, from the future? Yeah, yeah, it has been 20 years. I think there were projects which are which are short-term projects which can be managed in three to six months. They're projects that take a year, projects that take two years. So these days um, you have these different research strands which move along different timelines. So um, in the next couple of years, some of these longer timelines will start to make them public because bef now they're just they're moving along in a certain low-key way um so yeah there are a number of projects which it, it will take too long to talk about now but they will all emerge you know 20 2023 2024 2025 Gabriel Hecht, the historian of science, science and technology studies, and her point that that under climate change and the um, the differentiated forms of crises that the racial capitalism brings to bear around the world, under those conditions, the question of scale becomes crucial. And the question of scale is too important to leave to um, atmospheric chemists or geophysicists. And so these days we think in terms of um, what Gabrielle Hecht calls uh, an interscalar vehicle, which is a way of narrating the scales at which a practice moves. Um, she's talking a lot about uranium because her research is um, on nuclear power in France which then leads her to analyze um, the colonial uranium policy that France has used for the last 60, 70 years, where it's mining uranium from Gabon and countries in Central Africa. And she's, so she's tracing uranium from uranium mining in Gabon through to France, through to the so-called war on terror, Colin Powell holding up yellow cake. And that's the interscalar vehicle. It's, it's the narration of the journey of uranium. And these days, we think of our work as interscalar vehicles. So we don't think so much in terms of documentary or fiction. Is it documentary? Is it fiction? Is it facts? Is it portraits? 
Is it an essay? Is it a video essay? All of these are fine, but questions of genre are, I think, not as critical as questions of interscalarity. Like how to build a work that can move across scales of time, scales of matter, and the the levels at which the narration moves allows you to ask different questions as you move between scales. So Gabrielle Hecht is talking a lot about what she calls the African Anthropocene, which means what is the Anthropocene? What is the Anthropocene? How does the Anthropocene change when you think of it from the continent, from Central Africa, or from the Sahel? How would that change the questions you ask? You know, and so these days, that's how we try to think of our works. We could say we have several interscalar vehicles at different stages of construction. This is only one of them. So there are a few more in production and they will emerge in the next few years. Sounds really fascinating. I hope I will get a chance to see the upcoming projects as well. So I would uh, like to uh, thank you, Kocho, for taking time for this conversation, and I wish you good luck with the opening and with the exhibition here at the session. Well, thanks for taking time to come and talk to me, Oliver. It's a pleasure. After... We've been friends and acquaintances, I'd like to say, for many years, and I've always had a great respect for your work. We share many friends in common. I think I see us as, you know, we're broadly part of a certain community, a certain European-wide community of artists and critical practitioners. And so it's a pleasure to be able to, to share some time with you here in Vienna and to discuss these ideas for the first time because they're, they're both new and they're ongoing and it's only through conversations like this that I I start to get a sense of what it is you know of how what we do appears to a public especially a public as informed as yourself so thank you for these great questions and for your attention to the way we pay attention to how Lynette pays attention so thanks for that session podcast artists the production of this podcast was made possible by the kind support of the dorotheum